Today, our scripture passage is from Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. In our Red Pew Bibles, this is page 984. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I um, hope you guys enjoyed uh, having Alex Schwing shared with you last week. I uh, went down to Southern California to visit family. Um, it was it was good. My kids got to go to the beaches that I uh, grew up going to, and so that was fun watching them play in the same beaches. And then I, I was struck by this realization of why it's so much harder to be healthy than to be unhealthy. I got, it took it took so long to like lose a certain amount of weight that I more than gained in like a week. So I was like, "What's going on? This is but that's life." Um, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into these verses here. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, these people, and we pray that you would reveal yourself through your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, in these verses, we're going to be talking about the experience of spiritual fullness, the experience of um, spiritual freedom. Um, because this is what the Colossian church faced by various people uh, that were surrounding them. There was all of these different types of teachings that were circulating all around the Colossian church about the nature of spiritual fullness, the, the pathways to spiritual freedom, and all these various thoughts of how to achieve that. And so there were these people who were adding to what the Colossian church was believing. So the church was exhorted to believe that it was Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. But then you had all these different thoughts coming in and all these different teachings to say it's more than that. It's more than Jesus' death on the cross. It's more than Jesus' resurrection. It's more than his ascension. And it's still, these are still issues that we're dealing with today. And when we're talking with people and you tell them it's Jesus and in him crucified, that Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we have all these scriptures to support what we believe. But then you always have other teachings of people saying like, yeah, but... Is that really so? Is this? And then they start adding to the things to say like, yeah, but spiritual freedom and fullness is this also. 
And yet Jesus said this, John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are my true disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Oftentimes, especially around our culture, people here tend to define freedom as doing whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, however you want. And it's just, that's the definition of freedom is, is kind of like just being able to do whatever, wherever, whenever. And yet I think there's a failure to realize that actually when we go to that extreme of what freedom is, that it's actually become a bondage. And so if you simply think about all the different 12-step groups that our church hosts here, whether that be Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Sex Anonymous, we have all these different groups that meet here at our church and different 12-step programs. And if we are to kind of play that through and say that freedom is doing whatever you want whenever you want, and yet how come we have all these people who are stuck in bondage to the things that they've decided to go ahead and do, whether that's sex, drugs, or alcohol. And so what happens is, is that what we believe is freedom actually becomes what enslaves us and what gets us into bondage. And what Jesus is saying is that I, I'm the source of freedom, that Jesus is the source of freedom, that if you want to experience real fullness and real freedom, that you'll experience it with him, not necessarily just doing whatever you want whenever you want. He says this in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The freedom. You go in and out. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so even when we're thinking about simple things like gardening, you know, we have... uh, we had this beautiful garden in the back of the church uh, not too long ago. It was beautiful with a bunch of fruits and vegetables and things like that. It still comes up with the best figs that I've ever had ever before. If you haven't had them before, I don't know if they're there anymore because I think my kids attacked the tree. But they have the best figs. They're humongous, and it's like there's no GMOs or anything. They're just humongous figs. They're organic, and they're all, you know everything's there. Um, but... We, we, we kind of just let it go, and this thing just overgrew, and there was weeds everywhere. And, like, if we were to say that that's freedom, yet that's how people define things. Just let it go. But it was a mess, and you couldn't get there, and it killed everything that was fruitful except the fig tree. But it wasn't until, you know, Omar and Chelsea got back there and, like, cleaned everything up. It looks nicer now. And then you can actually see what's growing there and that there's fruitfulness happening. That there's the freedom for the fruit to grow. That it's not being choked out by things. And yet that's how we kind of sometimes see things in the world, right? That freedom is, oh, doing whatever, whenever, however. And yet nothing's able to grow in, in the wildness. Everything's getting choked out by everything else. And so here we see that Jesus is the source of fullness, of freedom. And amongst the people of the Colossian church, there was just deception flowing, free-flowing, in terms of 
what was in taking the shape of freedom, but it was really bondage, and people who were offering fullness, but actually what they were getting was emptiness. So that's kind of the background as we enter verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so here... In, in chapter 2, Paul issues three warnings. We're only going to go over one warning today because the other two are found in verses 16 and 18. We'll look at that next week. But here's this warning phrase, see to it, which is essentially the same thing as like caution or beware. Like see to it. And so Paul's telling his, these, this audience, be really cautious around these teachers who talk about their philosophies, who talk about these empty words, because those things actually will take you captive. Now, the Greek word used for the word captive in English, it speaks of being carried off as a slave, being enslaved. So rather than finding freedom, you'll be enslaved. You'll be taken by these philosophies, by these empty deceits. And like so many things, it starts in the mind, right? People don't just take you. They start telling you about things and you start believing those things and you start kind of thinking those things so you get to people by having them think a certain way to believe a certain way and then they're on the road to being deceived and so we need to seek the truth and we need to even look at whoever's talking about things from up here the same way as we would anybody else that whatever is being said from this microphone, you don't just take it as simple truth, but you actually look into it and you research it and you dig into it, you pray about it, and, and you measure it against the Word of God. That is it according to the Word of God. And if it's not, then you can disregard it. But if it is, then that's the truth. That's what we're going to lean into. And so just because something looks good or something sounds good doesn't mean that it's true. We need to compare it to the Word of God. And just because something has been done a certain way for a very long time doesn't mean that it's true. So when we're looking at something like human traditions, those human traditions may be contrary to the spiritual things of Christ, which have been eternal and not just old. And so Jesus addressed the human tradition of the Pharisees and scribes when it came to ceremonial hand-washing. Uh, we won't go into that story. You can read that for yourselves. But that's something, that, that, that's a point there that we need to be careful about, that we aren't enslaved to human traditions like the Pharisees and scribes were with the cleaning, that we can't just accept spiritually false things because of human tradition or because of elemental spirits of the world. And this, this phrase is really interesting, elemental spirits. This is speaking of of elements that, that fit into each other that uh, make this series of things. So, for example, we'll use the alphabet. So, in the alphabet, each letter has its element of speech. Like, it has its own different sound. And if you put these letters together, they make various sounds. And then that helps us to understand things. And so, I, I realize that's just a very rudimentary understanding according to, to the stuff. But... We're going to take this a little deeper in that there's a spiritual depth of understanding with God. That it's not just this elemental spirits, that you just kind of piece together these sorts of things. There's something of more depth to it. So it's, it's deeper than, say, let's use another example, like astrology. 
So astrology, for example, it will take these different elements. So they'll look at stars, for example. And you'll take these different elements and then you'll fit them in a series so that you can make something make sense to you. And so you'll order them in a certain way to say, when these things are aligned this way, it means this. When this is happening here, it means this. And that's, that's kind of how things are observed. And, and what Paul is saying is, be careful of those elemental spirits, of how when things are just pieced together like this, you got to be careful about that. It's, it, things aren't just chance. Things aren't just happening like that. And so be careful that those things don't enslave you and take you captive. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There were, there still are people who believe that Jesus is one of many gods that there are a ton of gods out there, small g, and that all gods are equal in terms of worthiness. And yes, there are distinctions of power because some gods are more powerful than other gods. But in terms of the gods you want to worship, you, you go to whatever god you want to worship because there are divine qualities in every god and everyone should believe and give equal worthiness to every god. So if you need help with your fertility, you can go to a fertility god. If you need a god that helps you with agriculture for your farming, that. If you need rain, that. And so you go to approach all these different gods. And so in terms of divine qualities, I completely agree. That's true. All these different gods have these different divine qualities. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus is not just one of many gods. That Jesus is God. He is, a, is God. And not that Jesus just possessed divine qualities of a God, but that he is God. Now, one of those divine qualities that we look at, no matter what your religion is, is that God heals. That your God has power to heal. And that's a divine quality that anybody looks at in their God. That that God has a quality of healing. And that can be easily proven. Because... If you believe in a God and you pray to that God and that person gets healed, then you can say, therefore, that God heals. There's a distinction between those gods and the Christian God in Jesus in that Jesus makes a claim that he forgives sin. And this is one that's a little harder to kind of reconcile because how do you tell that someone is forgiven of their sin? Because you can tell when somebody stops coughing. You can tell when somebody's cancer-free. But how do you tell when somebody is forgiven of their sin? So this is where we have to dig a little bit, and we have to look at the character of the person making the claims, and if their previous claims are true, and if those declarations are true. So we need to look at the life of Jesus, where there was no evidence of sin. Whereas if somebody else made that claim, then you look at their life and say, well, I see an evidence of sin that you've lied, you've killed somebody, you've, you've done various things. And so all of us here can admit that we aren't divine because we all have this sinfulness within us. And for anyone who would claim that they are divine and sinless, all we would have to do is call your parents or call your, call your siblings or call your best friend and it would be debunked, right? Like we would find out really fast hey, so-and-so says that they've never lied in their life. Is that true? Oh, please. Like, and they, would, they, would, they would like tell us, right? And so when we're looking at Jesus, there, are, there were so many opportunities 
for people to refute Jesus' claims, to, to say that they were false. So many opportunities for people to say, he's a liar. Just simply looking at the Gospels, all of the Gospels were written within a generation of people, within 70 years. So all those people who were still alive, who were able to read the Gospel accounts, to hear the Gospel accounts, could say, Peter, you're lying. Or, no, Jesus didn't do that. Or, Matthew, what you're writing is false. Luke, what you're writing is false. John, what you're writing is false. They could say these things. And so when we read this, we, we have to ask, where is the refute? Because if you and I made these claims, we would be proven false pretty easily. If anyone asked any of us if we've ever lied and we were honest, we'd have to admit it, that we, we have been a liar, that no one had to even teach us, that we just kind of did it when we were young. I didn't teach any of my children how to lie. I didn't teach any of them how to steal. They just naturally did it. They did it. They still do it. My five-year-old lies all the time and steals all the time when it comes to gum. If there's gum involved, she's a thief and she's a liar. Because we'll buy our kids gum, right? So we'll go out and go, gum, here's a, here's a pack, here's a pack, here's a pack. My three older ones realize we can't eat all this whole pack of gum in one sitting because then we won't have it for the rest of the month. So what they'll do is they'll just have a piece every now and then. So if they're in the mood to have gum, they'll have a stick of gum and then they put it away in the desk and they save it. My five-year-old can't do that. That gum is gone within hours because she'll just lose its taste, change it, lose its taste, change it. So what does she do? Steal. Because she wants gum. And so she'll go rummaging through my other kid's desk or where they hide their gum. And they've tried hiding it everywhere, but she always finds it because there's a scent. So she just follows where, where's the watermelon? Where's the mango? Like she, she'll follow the scent and then she'll find it in the clothes drawer and then take it. And then my other daughters would come and like, Dad, she took our gum again. And then I'll be like, okay, come here, honey. Did you take their gum? Because I'm going to give you a chance for repentance and confession. And, you know, I'm going to give you a chance to make things right. And she'll be like, no, I didn't do it. <laughs> okay, you didn't do it. So come here. Let me smell your breath. Because <clears throat> she knows she's been caught, right? Like, you can't hide it. Now, as she gets older and she gets more smart, she's probably going to get, like, a clove of garlic and chew on it and be like, Ah, smell that, Dad. You know, like. But we're sinful. And no one had to teach her to go sniffing around for watermelon gum. To steal it. Steal, take what was not hers. And then to lie about it when asked, did you steal it? Like, no one had to teach her that. She just did that. Jesus is sinless. Like, you, who can point to that? Because if anyone asks me, hey, um, Mackenzie claims that she's never done any sinful thing in her life. Ask her about the gum. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, we realize that there is no verse 10 if verse 9 is false. 
Right? There, there is no head uh, of all rule and authority if verse 9 is false. So Jesus being the, the head of all rule and authority, what does this tell us? This tells you and me that ultimately we are victorious in Jesus Christ. That all the terrible things we are experiencing in this world or have experienced or will experience in this fallen world, they're going to continue to happen, but ultimately we'll be victorious. And so I don't want to downplay any of your grief or any difficult thing that you're going through. But do know that you're not forgotten through it and you're not forsaken through it, that we already have victory in Christ's death, his resurrection and his ascension. But then there's also this not yet aspect to it in terms of he is returning, his second coming to come back. And we're living in this period where it's in between those two things, where it's after Christ's crucifixion, resurrection and death. And yet we're in between his return. And so we're in this not yet piece of the, the timeline of, that's within all of eternity. And so Paul was well aware of the transformative power of Jesus Christ because he himself experienced it. He himself was one who was putting followers of Jesus in jail, separating families, um, okaying executions of people and, and locking them up and, and letting people suffer because of their belief in Jesus. And he was the one that was okay with this and chasing people down. And that it wasn't until he was on the, the road to Damascus that he had this very dramatic transformation where he was struck blind and then he was, Jesus revealed himself to him. And it wasn't until that time that he was able to then finally move from this spiritual darkness into this spiritual light. That he was once dead to his sins and now he's alive because he's forgiven of these sins. Even these very, very evil sins. And so this idea of conversion, this idea of transformation is pictured by this death and then this resurrection that Christianity is not simply just a set of rules or a set of moral behaviors like that is portrayed so much in our media. That it's, being a Christian, you have to believe this certain amount of things or this certain thing, and you have to vote this certain way, and you have to behave this certain way. Christianity is a spiritual movement from spiritual death to spiritual life. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In verses 11 and 12, this is this picture of this spiritual death to life. To, to further illustrate this, Paul uses the pictures of circumcision and baptism. So he uses these two pictures. Now, why circumcision? Circumcision is this, is this very important act for the Jewish community, for in the Old Testament. It was a sign. It was this outward sign of being shown that they were God's chosen. You can read all about this in Genesis chapter 17. Uh, you can read that for yourself. 
but it was this outward mark that was supposed to reflect the inward devotion that they had towards God, that this outward um, sign was to show what, ha- what is happening on the inside, this external mark signifying to the person who they were internally. It's more than physical cutting. And so that's why we hear of these terms uncircumcised with not just that particular body part, but it's with various body parts. You, you hear of uncircumcised lips, uncircumcised hearts, uncircumcised ears. And so the people weren't talking about physically cutting off these body parts. They were talking about cutting off these parts that separate people from God. So if we're talking about cutting off ears or having uncircumcised ears, ears that haven't been cut or ears that haven't been dedicated to listening to God or uncircumcised hearts, a heart that hasn't been dedicated to receiving from God in their heart or uncircumcised lips, lips that haven't been dedicated to speak the things of God. So it's cutting away anything that is keeping us away from God. Circumcision wasn't just a physical thing. It was also a spiritual thing. And Paul was writing of the significance of the circumcision that was done by Christ. That Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, these are acts of purification that through what Jesus did, we have been forgiven of our sins to put off our old selves. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So here's something that um, we have to keep in mind. There are two different things. There's a sin nature that all of us still have, and then there's the old self. Those are two different things. The old self has been buried, and then we have this not yet aspect in us because we still have a sin nature in us. So we have victory over this old self, this this dead man in that Christ has already died for us once and for all and we are to put off this old self even though we still have the propensity to sin because we have a sin nature in us so even though we are converted the sin nature is still in us the sin remains but it doesn't reign does that make sense and so after the circumcision picture comes this baptism picture Baptism was done in water where the person was was put underwater to symbolize the burial of the old self and then resurrecting up into a new self. So aside from that thief on the cross next to Jesus, there is no professing Christian throughout the entire Bible that has not been baptized because you hear of these arguments of like, oh, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. I agree, you don't have to be. But you do have to realize, like, throughout the entire Bible, there's only one example of this person, and this person was on their deathbed. So if you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, your next step of obedience is baptism. And it's not that the baptism saves you. It's just kind of like that next step. Because people repented of their sins, and then they got baptized. You can read this throughout the Bible. And so unless you became a convert on your deathbed, then you need to be baptized. And I've done several of these 
um, deathbed conversions myself where I did not baptize the person um, because they weren't in a position to be baptized. One of them is my paternal grandmother who was on her deathbed in China and my dad and I were just praying really hard that God, can you give us one more shot to like share the gospel with her? Because we have like throughout our lives been sharing with her and then um, she was so weak that she couldn't talk and so it was just like, hey grandma, um, if you can blink once, that means yes. If you can blink twice, then that's no. And so we just had this conversation where she was blinking. And by the end of this conversation, she had received Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And that was wonderful. And the same thing, similar thing happened to my wife's dad, uh, my father-in-law. Um, he was dying of cancer and he was in hospice care. And um, same thing interesting thing with um, John was that when Katie and I got married and I was a pastor, one of the first things he told me was, your Jesus thing, like, keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear anything about it. And so, like, I'm, I'm happy you are, but I don't want to hear anything. And so I respected that throughout our entire relationship until he was in hospice care. And I was like, well, this is it. And I was like, John, I know you told me this before, but you can't fight back now. And so I'm going to share with you. And so we had a little good time there and he's smiling and he accepted Jesus on his deathbed. And I, I didn't like douse him with water or anything. It's just a couple of days later he died. So unless you're kind of like on your deathbed on a cross or a deathbed, then yeah, you don't do baptism. But if you can get baptized, this is kind of like the thing. And it's not a legalistic, religious thing. This is a relational thing. Let me give you an example of marriage. Right? When people say that they're married, but they never really got married. So they didn't uh, fill out the license to get married. They didn't have witnesses to sign the license. They're just saying that they're married. Who's going to accept that in this entire world if you say, this is my spouse? If you didn't have the marriage license and didn't have the witnesses. You can't just say that you are because that's something else. Then you're just something else, domestic partner, or you're, but you're not married. In order to be married, you have to go through this process of marriage. And so it's the same thing, similar thing with baptism. If you're saying you're a follower of Jesus, it's a relational thing. And if you don't go through that relational aspect of it, then you're missing something really significant in that you're showing yourself publicly, kind of like in a marriage, we're getting married and we have witnesses. And it's the same thing in baptism. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm showing everyone that I am. I'm burying my old self in this ceremony, symbolic ceremony, and I'm coming up a new person. And you're missing something really significant if you're not doing that and you're claiming you're a follower of Christ. When you go underwater, you are identifying with Christ's death when Jesus died. And all the judgment of God fell on Jesus. And so those who are in Christ are dead to their old self. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so this picture of baptism was performed by Christ and it portrays our fellowship with Christ. That the spiritual death was ours to pay for sin, but then Christ 
bore it. Now, we all will die biologically, physically, but not spiritually. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the baptism's body of water is symbolic of a grave. You're buried with Christ, and then you're raised with Christ. Now, you won't be raised with Christ if you're not buried with Christ. And so the power of God raising the dead to this newness of life is this beautiful, beautiful picture of what has happened to us spiritually. It's kind of like the circumcision thing. It's, it's a sign of what's happened internally. This, this outward sign of us going through baptism is just showing what has already happened inside of us. And it's this very personal, spiritual act that's being manifested in a physical sacrament. A really faithful act. A physical act is of no significance if you do the baptism if you don't have any faith. It, it's, not the act, it's not this action that saves you. It's kind of like the marriage thing again, right? Just because you go through the marriage thing, and yes, you're, you're a husband and wife, or however you're identifying yourself, it doesn't mean that, yay, happy, we're forever, everything's hunky-dory. You're just going through an action, but it's like meaningless. And so this physical act needs to have faith. And so we have this pre-conversion state where we are dead, God made us alive, and so have we moved from this spiritual death to this spiritual life? And this doesn't happen because you and I choose for it to happen. This happens through the power of God. And here's the problem that some Christians have. We make it religion about behavior. We make it a religion about morality. And so we want people to change their behavior. We want people to change how they vote. We want people to do all these different things. But has God changed your life? And that's the real key to the whole thing. Because then you start thinking, you know what? If I can just stop looking at porn, then I'm a Christian. If I can just stop drinking, if I can just stop Stealing. If I can just stop being slothful with my life, then I am. You're not. Because you can also look at it the other way in terms of positive things. You know what? If I can just do more good constructive things, if I can just help more people, if I can just give more money, if I can just donate more time to good causes, and then it all becomes works-based, which is an important aspect of being a Christian, but that's not all what it is. Those are all these little battles that we're fighting of like, what can I do more of? What can I do less of? But you're losing all these battles and sometimes you're winning these battles, but the war is lost. Because where is God in all of it? And if God's not in it, it's no different than any other humanistic approach that people take to living their life. There are a ton of good people out there that do awesome things and that stop doing not awesome things. But they're not followers of Jesus. The distinction with Christ is not just what's happening physically of what you're doing and what you're not doing. It's what's happening spiritually. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
We didn't do anything there. It's talking about God doing all of it. We were dead in our sins. So spiritually, we were sunk. And we needed to be spiritually liberated. We needed to be born again, regenerated, to be made spiritually alive. And only God does that. We can't do that ourselves. And how does God do this? Verses 14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we've been forgiven that through our faith in God's redemptive plan through Jesus, he forgives us of our sins. And this is the beautiful thing. Now, practically speaking, what, what do we do with this? If, if you receive this letter from Paul, just practically speaking, what do you, what do, you do with this now? And so I, I'm, I'm imagining that what, what a letter did to someone like Philemon. Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, who had the Colossian church meeting in his home. Now, Philemon had this bond servant by the name of Onesimus, who was contractually obligated to fulfill his responsibilities to Philemon's household. Paul wrote to Philemon about forgiveness because Onesimus didn't fulfill this contractual obligation. He ran away. And so Paul is essentially saying, you know, Philemon, God forgave you of your sin. Who are you not to forgive Onesimus of his wrong? And so maybe this has some pertinence to somebody here. That there's someone we haven't forgiven even though we've been forgiven so much. Are we harboring an unforgiveness? Are we harboring this resentment or bitterness towards somebody that we actually need to forgive? A lot of times, um, that other person that we have something against doesn't even know it. And so I, I've, been, I've talked to somebody, a life coach of mine that I really respect, and she's told me, like, why are you giving them rent-free space in your head? Like, why are they occupying your thoughts and all this kind of stuff? Like, rent-free. They don't even care. They don't even know you're dealing with this stuff. And you're, you're kind of, like, dealing with these sorts of things in your, own, in your own mind. And we won't experience the fullness and the freedom of Christ without forgiveness from God and forgiving others. That, that unforgiveness that is harbored in our heart, in our mind, that is just eating away at us. And through God, he can set us free from that bondage, from that harboring in there, that they're just staying there rent-free. Because he canceled that record of debt that stood against you through himself. He can help you cancel debt against others too. And maybe what was done against you or someone that you love is, is just so great that the forgiveness is just unimaginable. And I just want to encourage you that maybe you don't take like a complete step of forgiveness, but that you at least just look towards God. And that you just have a little bit of faith to just say, God, can you get this stuff out of my head and get this stuff out of my heart? Because it's just like stuck in there. And I can't be completely happy because whenever I think about those things, I go back into negative thoughts. I go back into a dark hole. I go back into thinking these things that 
are just eating away at me. We were guilty by every account of sin, but through Jesus Christ we have been redeemed. That the, lo- the law no longer condemns us through Jesus. And yet, are we condemning others? And if we are, then it kind of tells us whose side we're on. Are we on the side of the one who sets people free or the one who condemns? Um, many of you have heard my forgiveness story or unforgiveness story. Um, it was against my father. I didn't talk to him for over eight years because we were estranged. I, um, he mistreated my family. Uh, my parents were just waiting for my sister to graduate high school so that they can go through their divorce. And um, that's what happened. And so um, my dad essentially left my family destitute. Um, and so me and my sister were left to fend for ourselves at very young ages. And so we just never really had that great of a relationship with him uh, growing up. And so um, I'm going through college and going through my young adult life and I'm just kind of living on my own and um, hanging out with my mom and sister, but dad's kind of like out of the picture, nothing really happening there. And then I just get this call out of the blue um, and he's asking me to move in with him into his apartment. And he's telling me, um, I'm, I'm going to be kicked out because I can't make rent and um, I'm going to be living on the streets, so can you help me? And uh, I wanted to say lots of different things to him at that time, but um, I just, like, I felt God hold my tongue. And it was the weirdest thing. There was things I wanted to say, but I couldn't say them. And, and then the only thing that I could say after, like, I felt like my tongue was released was, like, I'll pray about it. And then I hung up the phone. I was like, what did you just say? Like, out of all things to, like, say, out of, after eight and a half years... You're going to pray about it? I mean, I had, I had every cuss word in the book in my head. Like, I had, I had everything that I was wanting to say that wasn't coming out of my mouth. And so then I, I, I'm talking to my roommates at the time, like, can you believe this? Like, this dude. And then I started talking to, like, different mentors in my life and um, people that I respected, and they would point me back to the scriptures and the one thing that they, they consistently point me back to was like honoring my father. And I was like, come on. Like, what's, what is this all about? And so I'm praying about this stuff. And two weeks later, I moved back in to live with my dad. And I'm in my bunk bed that I grew up with since I was four years old. He's in the top bunk and I'm on the bottom bunk. And my same Star Wars bed sheets are on there. They're, they're awesome bed sheets. I really want those back. And I'm there, and um, I'm thinking, I'm going to be single the rest of my life. Like, what, who am I going to bring back here? You know, like, I'm living, my dad's living with me, and like, what, what is this? And I was like so depressed, and I was like, what's going on, God? Come on. 
And so I would purposely work longer hours than I was before. I would, I, I would go into work, I'd be in the office by 5, I would leave the office at 10 just so that I could avoid him during the day. And then when I come back at night, he'd just be watching TV, and then I can just be like, I'm tired, I'm going to bed, and i got to get up early. And I would try to do this. And then it was like a few days until God, like I'm at work, and God's like, you're going to go home early today. I'm like, what for? He was like, you're going to hang out with your dad. I was like, no way. It's like, no way. All the guy does is he watches the Jade Channel. Do you guys know what the Jade Channel is? It's this Chinese Hong Kong television station. And he's, that's all he does. So he's just at home watching the Jade Channel. I'm like, what am I going to do? And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And so I started going home. I started leaving the office at 5 and getting home. I'm home at about 6, 6.30 because it's in L.A., L.A. traffic, hour and a half commute. So I'm there. And I'm watching Jade Channel. I'm like, all right, God, really productive. Like, this is cool. This is awesome. And then my dad's like, do you want dinner? And so I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll have dinner. So we're eating together. And then on commercial breaks, we'd start talking to each other. And um, this happened over several days. And then he'd start just telling me his perspective on things about what happened between him and my mom and like what he tried to do to salvage things but then like I always got her perspective on things and so I was starting to hear his and then like starting to understand some things more clearly and then months later this forgiveness thing happens and so then we start traveling together and we start doing stuff together and we're like buddies and I'm not worrying about being single forever and like all this kind of stuff and um, that's when we get the call about my grandmother dying on her deathbed and we can both go together. And so then we're, we're friends. Like I just came back from visiting him and celebrating my daughter's fifth birthday and like all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's been a huge blessing. And one of the things I, I, I gather from it looking back was I felt so stuck. I felt so stuck in my life because... Back then, I was wondering, like, why am, I, why, why am I dating this girl for four and a half years and we haven't gotten married yet? Why am I in this job that is okay, but it's not, like, the greatest thing that I, I want? Why am I in pastoral ministry school when I don't feel called to be a pastor? And why am I living with my dad? Like, why is all this stuff happening? And I'm praying about all this stuff. And I think what was clogging all of it, and I seriously think this, was this forgiveness issue. Because once the forgiveness happened between me and my dad, like the floodgates opened in terms of all these other things in my life that I've been praying about. So that girl that I was dating for four and a half years, she lived in the Bay Area. I, I got transferred to the Bay Area and I got this dream job that I've been wanting for like three years. I've been working towards it for this job transfer and I finally got it and it afforded me to like provide for my parents and then wean them off of the stuff so I didn't have to live on the bottom bunk of my dad's apartment anymore. And then the girl I was dating was here in the Bay Area, so I thought, well, for sure, we're getting married. So I buy this ring, and we're, we're, I'm going to propose. And God's like, you're not marrying her. Like, what do you mean? Like, I moved here. Like, we're here. We've been doing this long-distance thing for so long. What do you mean? It's like, you're not marrying her. All right. And so it took a while because things were going really well between us, and I had to just tell her, like, God told me like we're not supposed to get married and then this big smile comes across her face and she was like I'm so relieved I was like what <laughs> and she was like God told me the same thing months ago but I didn't know how to 
I didn't know how to tell you. Like, I, I didn't know what to say. And I was like, oh, okay, great. That was like the best breakup ever. It was like the easiest thing. Um, I sold my, my ring for more than what I bought it for. And I was like, it was great. <clears throat> and, and so that was another prayer that was answered. This pastoral ministry thing that I was just wondering, like, God, why do you have me doing these classes? Like, why is this? This is just a waste of time because I don't feel called into it. And it wasn't until I moved up here, then this Bible study opened up, and then the Bible study became a church. And so all these things happen because of a forgiveness thing. And so I just wonder if there's anyone here that there's this forgiveness thing that's just bottlenecking your life. And it's not to say, like, everything comes out splendidly because you issue the forgiveness, because at the time, my heart was, I did have a broken heart after dating this girl for four and a half years. So it's not like everything turns out great, right? But if there's something that's just holding up, that's bottlenecking something that God wants to kind of release, and yet he's just waiting for you to do this act of faith so that it can be unleashed. We are new creations who have been delivered from darkness. And it's power through Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage you not to leave here without that power of Christ in your life. Maybe you can't forgive, but just look towards him. Because he's this beautiful picture of forgiveness, of how he's forgiven you of your sins, no matter what they are. David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was forgiven. It's not to say there was no consequences because... He had some severe consequences. But he was forgiven. And he was still known as a man after God's own heart. And essentially that's what we need to do. We just need to be looking, postured towards his heart. And then let him work within us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your example. Thank you for your sacrifice. And I pray, God, for a softness of heart and open mind, open hands, listening ears to receive what you have for your children. Um, there are things that, really, really terrible things that have happened to people and things that um, cause us so much grief. And they've taken residence residents inside of our brothers and sisters and we ask God that they would be freed from those things that they would be able to experience true spiritual fullness and freedom in you God I pray for forgiveness for any way that our church or we as Christ followers have misrepresented you and we ask God for you to empower us to represent you well in Jesus' name, amen.